This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. We're coming to you live from our 50,000-watt flagship station, Zuma Radio in Toronto. Hello to all of you listening in on AM 740, all of our affiliates stateside and those around the world listening in on the uh, the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkZone.com, and, uh, of course, online at ZumaRadio.ca. So however and wherever... You're listening. Great to have you aboard. Uh, Albert, the intern, has posted some great stories, as always, in the slide carousel up at richardserrett.com. The Internet has been on fire, of course, with theories about the upcoming paramilitary exercises coming maybe to a town or a state near you this July in the United States. It's called Jade Helm 15, and this exercise has a lot of people very nervous. Some are even suggesting this exercise is a precursor to martial law. Uh, You may want to check out a piece we've republished or reposted from zengardner.com titled Turning America into a Battleground uh, to that end. And we're working on putting a show together on Jade Helm 15 and what it all means. Uh, Is it all hype or do Americans have something to worry about? We've reached out to our good friend Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, He's a frequent a frequent guest here on The Conspiracy Show, so we're hoping he'll join us uh, for an upcoming show on Jade Helm 15, for all of you who've been emailing and asking. Uh, if you're into money and politics, there's a revealing story posted there about Hillary Clinton's presidential bid for 2016 and her connections with the big bankers. Nomi Prince, who is a former Wall Street exec and author of All the President's Bankers, The Hidden Alliances That Drive American Power. It's just out in paperback, and... Uh, uh, there is a, um, I guess, an excerpt from that posted on the uh, the website as well, richardserrett.com. Uh, as she documents in her book, the Clintons have long-standing ties uh, to the mightiest banks on Wall Street. Those alliances will prove vital as Hillary tries to keep up the money primary of the of the uh, 2016 campaign. But as she tries to appeal to working and middle-class people, you can expect her opponents to use Clinton's Wall Street connections against her. Again, those are just two of the hot stories we've posted on the slide carousel at toprichardserrett.com. While you're there, click on the blue member area button and register. It's fast, it's easy, it's free. And you gain access to all sorts of exclusive member-only areas, past guests, past show archives, and the book club. Uh, very quickly, there's an event happening in Toronto next week and other major centers around North America and the world. It's called the March Against Monsanto. I doubt there's anyone listening who isn't at least partially familiar with Monsanto. This seed and chemical giant's stated goal is to feed the world through genetically modified crops like corn and soy and canola and sugar beets. But their critics are legion. In fact, Monsanto has been so vilified... They've recently rolled out a brand new social media marketing campaign to restore their image. Is Monsanto deserving of its reputation? Are GMOs getting a bad rap? Or are these frankenfoods responsible for a spike in cancer and other serious illnesses? My next guest says GMOs are a scourge 
and Monsanto, along with other companies like Dow and Pfizer, are flouting laws and regulations thanks to powerful government insiders that are turning a blind eye to a bevy of animal studies that show GMOs, Roundup-ready plants, for example, like corn, are poisoning our food supply. Dr. Shiv Chopra has a Ph.D. in microbiology. He's the recipient of numerous academic awards, including a fellowship of the World, World Health Organization, and uh, he'll be a keynote speaker at the Toronto March Against Monsanto happening on May 23rd. Good evening, Dr. Chopra. How are you? Good evening. Thank you very much. Uh, let's begin with uh, a definition, a genetically modified organism. What is it exactly? Genetically modified organisms are any type of cell, bacteria, human, any species, where you modify its DNA by injecting DNA from another species. And uh, then you select a whatever characteristic you want. And uh, so it's across the species, which doesn't happen in nature. In nature, within the species, uh, those organisms can interbreed, but they cannot cross the species barrier. That is the law of nature, God, if you like. That's the way it's supposed to work. Because if it didn't work that way, the whole existence will collapse. So DNA of every species is what defines a species. If you go across the DNA, then you have a disaster. All right. Is there anything in principle wrong with trying to improve, let's uh, concentrate on uh, food crops, for example, either for a livestock feed or for human consumption. In principle, is there anything wrong with trying to enhance, let's say, the nutritional value uh, of a particular uh, foodstuff by genetically altering it? Well, there's nothing wrong uh, in doing anything. That's the way technology works, the science, science works. We are always trying to find out how we can work with nature, uh, sometimes to cure disease or improve situations. Uh, let's just get away from genetically modified, the technical name that we're using. There is crossbreeding. For example, you can take a cow, which is what people did 6,000 years ago, and they bred it in a sense uh, that the cows produced more milk. Normally, the cow will produce just enough milk for his calf, but the people trained it to uh, give more milk. You can take a horse, you can make it... Uh, run faster and faster, and, and various things like that. You can take by interbreeding, but you're remaining within the species. If you cross the species, even closely related species, for example, you can interbreed a donkey and a horse, and then you get a mule. And that mule is sterile. It's called a hybrid. Mule cannot produce another mule nor a donkey, nor a horse. So it's the, it's the dead-end point, and that's the way it works, because those are very closely related species. But what we're doing here is you're taking the gene or DNA 
from one species and putting it into another. For example, you can take a gene from a bacteria and you put it into crops. And uh, uh, bacteria is called Bacillus thuringiensis, long technical name, just let's call it Bt. You can take this bacteria, lives in the soil, and it produces some kind of a poison to protect itself against other species or uh, 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 find, to find food. For example, this bacteria will uh, attack certain insects for its own food, and it will slit its intestinal uh, system inside, and it feeds on it. Now, what uh, companies have done, companies like Monsanto, they've taken this bacteria, and they've taken this gene, and they have now put that gene, Bt, into corn or into cotton or soybean, and, and therefore they're called Bt. So they're producing their own pesticide. The, the plants produ- are... Exactly. Right. But the problem here is now the whole plant is producing. Bacteria is one single cell uh, or a few bacteria in the soil. But now you've got uh, these crops huge plants, cotton the size of trees, corn, big plants, and miles after miles after miles, all producing toxin that the bacteria was supposed to produce. The toxin is now coming out uh, constantly into the soil. It's not just killing the pest that goes and sits on the plant. It's also killing whatever else is in the soil. That's the kind of a disaster that is happening with BT because now you're killing um, earthworms, you're killing insects, you're killing beetles and ants and all those organisms that help uh, uh, the soil to produce food. This is the kind of... Similarly, you can take uh, a gene of a cow and put it into bacteria. Now it's the other way around. And uh, the the cow's... uh, uh, let's say it, there's a hormone that induces milk production in the cow. If you take that gene, put it into E. coli bacteria, now that uh, bacteria thinks it's a cow, now it becomes a factory for producing the bovine growth hormone, and they call it recombinant or, in other words, genetically modified. Now the, what the companies are saying, let's take this uh, 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 hormone produced by the in the bacteria let's give injections of it to the cows every two weeks and we'll produce 10 percent more milk from the cow now this we definitely know what happened with that that uh, um, uh, uh, studies were done they were asked for i won't go into the full details they're all described in my book what happened they uh, that the cows got sick, cows got milk, pus in the milk, cows got uh, infected in their udders, uh, mammary glands, bacteria, uh, and then they, they had to be given antibiotics. And then the cows also produced another hormone. It's called insulin-like growth factor. And that causes, uh, or at least associated with increased in cancer in people. Let me so, just uh, stop you there, Dr. Chopra. We're coming up on a break. Uh, let me just ask you a very quick question and give me a, is this milk 
uh, currently in production in Canada, in the United States, is it being consumed by humans in North, in North America? Well, it is not produced in Canada because it was not approved. This, this product, uh, when I blew the whistle back in 1998, 1997, uh, this um, uh, created a big scandal. There was a Senate investigation. I was called to testify. Okay, I've got to stop you there. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about uh, GMOs. Uh, Dr. Shiv Chopra is with us, the author of Corrupt to the Core, Memoirs of a Health Canada Whistleblower. We'll also talk about March Against Monsanto happening May 23rd. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Dr. Shiv Chopra, PhD in microbiology and will be a uh, keynote speaker uh, May 23rd, the March Against Monsanto here in Toronto. This, uh, Incidentally, this march that's happening in Toronto, is this now a growing global phenomenon? Are there similar marches in other centers around the world? Well, that's what's happening this, um, uh, certainly this day. There'll be marches all over the world. It has grown very big. It keeps growing. Uh, whether it's having an effect, we don't know, but certainly it's bringing more and people, more and more people to become aware of what's happening to them, and then people in their own ways are demanding or requesting or sending petitions. We can talk about that, whether it's effective or not. If it's not effective, what needs to be done? Okay, let's, let me ask you uh, first about uh, the, the primary uh, food uh, crops that are being genetically modified. Uh, there are five principles, as I understand. Can you name those, those crops? Uh, oh, uh, uh, there's canola, there's uh, uh, corn, there's um, uh, um, soybean, uh, there's now alfalfa, there's beetroot, uh, there's a bunch of crops. Wheat is not yet, but uh, yet it's been shown that it was secretly even released and tested and so on. We don't know. Uh, but the major crops which are already approved, they are out there. Okay, and papaya, I believe, is also genetic. And modified. papaya. Why, why, what would they do with papaya? What is the purpose there? Well, you know, the purpose in every case, f- from the company's point of view, is to somehow create a product and put a patent on it and own it and decide what the uh, people can buy or not buy. And it, it's control over food supply. Uh, like but are they enhancing, in their mind, are they increasing the nutritional value, the yield of the papaya? Uh, are they adding? What, what are they doing specifically? Not at the, all. No. Nothing of the kind is happening. It's the, it's the uh, contrary of what the company is claiming. Those are all lies. They've now got apple uh, that won't brown. Uh, so most of these crops are also, like we talked about BT, but the big culprit here is a product called Roundup. Roundup Ready Plants, yes. Roundup Ready Plants. You need to explain what that's all about. That's right, because the company has uh, had patented that Roundup back in the 60s as an antibiotic. They were hoping they will use it as an antibiotic. 
because it's produced by a bacteria and it didn't seem to be too toxic. And, uh, but then they used that uh, Roundup uh, to uh, now make the crops resistant to Roundup. Now, Roundup is a pesticide that kills absolutely anything green. It takes a couple of weeks for it to do so. And, and then uh, um, they, they clean up the whole soil, spray it. Everything is gone. No weeds, no greenery, nothing left in the field. Then the farmer comes in and he just puts in whatever crop uh, that is uh, genetically modified. And then as it starts to grow, then they come back with the same Roundup and they spray it again. And this is how it began. In other words, if I could just stop you just to to, to make it clear to listeners, uh, if you create a a plant that is resistant to Roundup, then you can go in and spray the Roundup indiscriminately uh, in order to get rid of the the weeds and and other things around the the plants. uh, But the plant is still absorbing that Roundup, is it not? Oh, of course. I mean, Roundup has now gone into, that's how Roundup kills a plant. It goes into the system of the plant. That's why it's called a systemic uh, herbicide. It gets into the plant, and down below, it uh, uh, ties up uh, uh, certain chemicals or uh, metals or or food for for the crop. And and th- therefore, it takes a couple of weeks for it to uh, uh, the the the, the uh, um, plant to die. Now, what they've done here, if you make the a crop that you want and you don't want the weeds, so you make that resistant artificially, genetically modified. And now you can put any amount of Roundup one, two, three, four, five times, or whatever number of times. Initially, the idea was to put just uh, two applications, one before and one after. And then they saw weeds were growing and bigger and bigger weeds. So now farmers are putting as much as sometimes seven um, sprays. And then to make it even worse, the same Roundup is even used uh, whether it's on uh, GMO crops or not, uh, to dry the crops at the end of the season. And so Roundup can be uh, put uh, on any crop. It could be wheat, it could be rice, uh, anything which is not approved. Uh, And the crop uh, quickly dries up and the farmer gets the seed. Now imagine so many applications have been um, put there and then finally, this is, you can't even, you're not waiting for rain. You're not going to wash this, this, this uh, seed now. It's all over the place. And this Roundup is now, after all these years, people have been doing studies. They say that it's, it, it, it can, uh, can cause cancer and it can cause all sorts of other things. And there are, it, there are, human, there are human studies that have shown this, or is this anecdotal evidence? No, uh, there are experiments, human studies. I mean, you can't um, do studies um, in humans, but in animal studies, of course, it's been shown to cause tumors, to cause uh, uh, rashes, and even death in, um, in animals. And so that happens. But you can't do a study like that in humans. But what does happen, though, 
uh, over a period of time, if this product has been used for now several decades, bizarre things are happening out there in people. Are we finding Roundup in uh, breast milk, for example? We're finding uh, Roundup in breast milk. We're finding in urine. Uh, so that, that's an indication that it is being absorbed and excreted and secreted so it, it, in the body fluids. So it, it is going through the system. As it goes through the system, there is uh, uh, in our intestinal tract, in humans and animals, there is trillions of healthy bacteria living in our gut. Yes. Those bacteria help us digest protein. They make synthesize certain amino acids, which we don't. Uh, or they uh, synthesize some vitamins. They steal some food. That's the kind of symbiotic relationship that in nature has evolved. So you live with each other. Bacteria, you help bacteria, bacteria help you. What happens is, with this roundup, and there are other things, of course, I mean, we can talk about that. Right now, we only talk about GMOs and pesticides, but there are, in addition, there are antibiotics, too, uh, being fed and injected into animals. So what's happening with all this is that, that this whole system in the body is called microbiome. It's an organ by itself. Our immune system depends on the intestinal tract. In the tiny little appendix is the most essential organism in the body uh, for the immune system. So what, what's happening is that you are uh, killing those bacteria. And once you kill those bacteria, it sets up inflammation in the intestinal tract. Now you can get, people are getting gluten intolerance, people are getting allergies, people are getting autism, uh, people are getting cancer. Uh, when you s- start seeing things which were uncommon before 50, 60 years ago, very uncommon, now are becoming epidemics. And so therefore, at this point, you have to, even if you made a mistake, even if you said, okay, we'll try it out. Now you've done it for 50 or 60 years and now crops for the last 20 years. Now we know things are happening. You cannot keep on lying that nothing, that's not related. That's not, but what is the advantage? Who are we doing it for? Why is the company being allowed to do what it's doing without testing? Because there's a law in the country. There's a law in the United States. There's a law in Canada. This law is called the Food and Drugs Act in both countries. It is now 120 years old. Initially, back in 1895, it was called the Adulteration Act. At that time, the thought was that um, you cannot mix two products and uh, because people were putting uh, alcohol and turpentine and making drugs and syrups and things like that and, and, and uh, killing people. Uh, uh, and then, as a result of it, the countries in their wisdom, they passed the, so, uh, the Adulteration Act. That went on from 1895 to uh, 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 about 1938, when somebody thought of 
taking a pill, sulfonamide pill, which was very hard to, there used to be large pills, and they could not be dissolved in water, and children in particular, they were awful things to uh, swallow to control infections. And uh, so somebody thought, well, maybe I'll take the sulfonamide and dissolve it in a solvent and then put some syrup or sugar in it, and um, then uh, children can drink it. What happened, 100 Americans died. And then when they went back and they found, uh, how come they died from drinking this stuff that normally wasn't killing? Well, what happened in the syrup? Then they discovered that the fellow, whoever the company was, they had used ethylene glycol, which is the windshield wiper fluid. Oh, dear. It's extremely toxic. And so, as a result, then uh, the U.S. and Canada followed immediately. In 1945, they said every product has to be tested in living animals. Right. Listen, we've, we've only got about uh, two minutes here. Uh, time is moving uh, quickly, uh, Dr. Chopra, and we won't have time to get into the entire history of the FDA and, and Health Canada. Uh, but um, when we come back, I, I want to find out then how... Uh, many of these products seem to get almost rubber stamped or almost without uh, FDA approval being needed. We'll we'll discuss that. We'll also talk about uh, the upcoming march against Monsanto happening here in Toronto, May 23rd, but also in other places uh, around the world. Dr. Shiv Chopra is a uh, microbiologist and the author of Corrupt to the Core, Memoirs of a Health Canada Whistleblower, also a keynote speaker at the aforementioned Toronto March Against Monsanto. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. I'm Richard Serrett. Uh, Dr. Chopra remains uh, with us as we continue to talk about uh, genetically modified organisms. Um, Okay, so the big question. Now, you, you were employed with Health Canada at one time, were you not? Yes, I worked there for 35 years. Okay, so what is going on then with, with Health Canada and, and the FDA in the United States? Why are they not protecting us from these products if there are animal studies that show that, for example, these Roundup-ready plants are causing tumors in animals? Why they should be our, you know, the first line of defense? Why are they allowing these products to be uh, produced? Well, they have to answer that is uh, one uh in uh, answer in one word is corruption. Corruption. Is corruption. The companies are running the show. The companies have taken over. In my book on page one, uh, 154, I said, Monsanto said they and five or six other companies, they will take over the White House and the British Parliament and the German Parliament and the French Parliament and the Jap- Japanese Parliament. And that's what they have done. That That was... They had that was their manifesto in 1990. That's what has happened. And the the present food czar, the, named by President Obama in the United States, is a former the director of Monsanto. Is he? Well, not? I mean, he's gone in and out. Uh, it's not just Obama. It, it happened uh, before Mr. Obama became president. It, uh, it, uh, this has been going on for quite some time, and we have it in Canada too. The uh, Monsanto vice president was sitting in inside the Minister of Health's office and taking briefings on me and other people. And, and so this is the way it is. They are running the show. They sit inside the department. They're not just lobbyists. They are running the show. Are they helping formulate policy? Well, they are breaking the law. It's not form, forming. You know, policy cannot override an existing law. 
There is a law which is attached to the criminal court. People doing that, uh, whoever lies, is supposed to go to jail. Okay. And, uh, well, in order for them to lie, they would have to be uh, sworn. This would be in a, in a hearing type situation, a congressional hearing, a parliamentary hearing. Are you saying that officials with Monsanto in a congressional or parliamentary hearing have sworn under oath and well, lied, that, lied that, while sworn under oath? Well, that's what happened in the case of one product, BGH, in Canada. But then that was a Senate investigation. Then the, our Senate went back to sleep. And nothing has happened here, not in the United States or anywhere else. And interestingly, the European Union does not allow GMOs, although they are allowing pesticides and so on. So, uh, uh, so there are very, very serious problems all over the world because the companies are just to make profit. They're selling these things, which is illegal. So the governments are breaking their own law. When, when you go into the grocery store and you're wheeling your cart through uh, the aisles, what I mean, it's pretty difficult uh, to avoid corn because corn, whether it's corn syrup or there's, there's you know, uh, byproducts from corn, is an ingredient in many, many, many foods. Absolutely. What, what there's th- corn, there's uh, sugar that's also com- uh, coming from uh, beetroot uh, that's also genetically modified. You cannot avoid. There's no way you can avoid because uh, even if then the animals are being fed this, even if you say, I'm not going to buy corn myself, but the animals are being fed that corn. Anim- uh, all this all over the place. They're making ethanol from the same thing. The, the huge changes are occurring. Uh, uh, you know, the carbon uh, burning and, and making ethanol, driving cars, the change of uh, climate change. People are not even realizing how things are, have become so bad uh, uh, due to uh, this genetic engineering experiment that is going on. Governments have, pa- have passed a, the law that by law now 5 to 10 to 20 percent of your uh, uh, gasoline will have ethanol made from corn, genetically modified. Imagine what's happening to the fields and, and the um, soils and the waters of the, of the countries. It's not just a direct consumption by people. It's coming uh, upon us from all sides. If I buy uh, corn, sweet yep. corn, at the uh, the local market, well, is that likely GMO corn? Ninety-five uh, percent uh, of it, yes. Ninety-five percent. Do you avoid eating corn? Yeah, I don't eat corn. I I. <laughs> I avoid lots of things, but then that's me. Uh, knowing too much becomes a curse. But what do people I can do? imagine. Exactly. Well, we've, we have yet again to take another time out. This will, uh, we'll have one more segment here, and we'll, uh, uh, we'll continue to delve into this serious, serious topic. Genetically Modified Organisms. Dr. Shiv Chopra with us, Ph.D. in Microbiology and the author of Corrupt to the Core, Memoirs of a Health Canada Whistleblower. Back with more. The Conspiracy Show. All right, our final segment with uh, Dr. Shiv Chopra, former Health Canada whistleblower. Corrupt to the Core, Memoirs of a Health Canada Whistleblower is the book. Uh, Very quickly, the Toronto March Against Monsanto happening May 23rd. You're a keynote speaker. Give us a few more details, if you could, Dr. Chopra. Well, the march will occur like every year. uh, And then, you know, people don't just march. People also enjoy themselves there's organic food they teach each other they have fun there's music uh, but at the same time very serious talk 
uh, where people now want, they, they want to know, what do we do? We've marched, we've sent petitions, we've uh, done all kinds of things, but it's not working. My recommendation to them has been, and is becoming more critical, that don't keep marching against Monsanto. You have to march against US FDA, Health Canada. You have to march against uh, our own government, which is corrupt. Companies cannot do what they're doing. Because the companies, we're aiding, our governments are aiding and abetting companies to do what they're doing. The companies cannot do this. All right. This, the, I should also point out that um, sort of the theme of this year is called Celebrate Farm to Fork, and it's at Christie Pitts Park here in Toronto, 1 to 6 p.m. That's, uh, again, May the 23rd, 2015. Celebrate Farm to Fork at Christie Pitts Park, 1 to 6 p.m. It's the second annual Toronto GMO-free festival and farmer's market. Uh, what is the status of, um, in the United States, there have been a number of uh, state uh, initiative, ballot initiatives to put, to demand or um, or require food labeling that would list GMO ingredients. Now, we saw this um, um, go down in flames in places like California when a number of companies sort of lined up and Coca-Cola and Monsanto and Dow and so forth. I believe it has been passed in one state, if I'm not mistaken, it's Vermont, has yes. successfully passed a, uh, a food labeling requirement. What is the, st- the status of such an initiative here in Canada? Once again, label is required for any product. A label is required to be put on, on the bag or a bottle, depending upon what the product is, outside, and a larger label description. It's called package insert on inside. In other words, it has to... Uh, the company has to declare all the ingredients, including water. They have to uh, declare that on the label. But do they have to? Do they have to include uh, a warning that it contains genetically modified organisms? Well, that's what should be happening because that's what they have to say. This product contains mercury or aluminum, or this virus or that virus, and such and such could happen, and so forth. And the same way, why is it that genetically modified organisms and their products are not labeled? Because it's a requirement of the law. It is. It is a requirement of the law in it Canada. It is a requirement of the law. And yet our food, they, they are not labeling our food as GMO. They do not put on the label. They did not put on the label of either milk or, or these things. Uh, that this contains GMOs, and it, uh, with that also comes the Roundup of the pesticides and BT and this and that. All that has to be put on the label. Now, the, the, excuse me, Dr. Chopra, uh, the, the rationale uh, for companies like Monsanto, and I believe Dow is also involved in producing GMOs, Dow yes. Chemicals, uh, who brought us uh, Agent Orange. <laughs> uh, now, their rationale is that we cannot feed the world seven billion souls and counting. We cannot feed the world using traditional uh, agricultural methods. That's why we need uh, these factory farms, and that's why we need genetically modified uh, crops. First of all, who told them to do so? We cannot. Who, who is begging them? We can't compete with... China, India, Mexico, and there's so much food in the world. More than 40% of the uh, uh, food is being wasted. And uh, so, uh, and this is a complete lie. 
that they cannot feed the world. So much food is uh, being wasted and uh, then being turned into corn um, and ethanol and turned into meat and and, uh, other products, hormones, antibiotics, slaughterhouse, slaughterhouse waste. All this is being put into our food supply. All these are illegally uh, present there. So it's not just Monsanto. There's a whole bunch of companies. There's Pfizer, there's Eli Lilly, there's all of these companies, uh, Syngenta they, and Dow, they're all together. And then, of course, there's slaughterhouses. The whole system is in a complete mess. It's all corruption. Do genetically modified, uh, does genetically modifying a, a plant increase the yield? No, they don't. The only, in fact, in fact, it becomes less. The only reason it seems to happen is because initially they were given advantage by using the pesticide or herbicide or Roundup, things like that. Because if you leave them alone, the GMO cannot compete against the natural organism. It will die. If, if allowed to compete with it in natural environment, it will not survive. What can we learn from Europe? Europe, uh, Europe has banned uh, genetically modified organisms. Europe, Europe has banned hormones, antibiotics, slaughterhouse waste, and GMOs. They haven't. Uh, they are also beginning to ban a number of pesticides like neonicotinoids and a few others. And th- those are responsible for the the killing of bees. I understand. Yes. How can we uh, emulate what they're doing in Europe? Why were they successful in Europe to, to, to shut it down? What, what can we learn from them and do it here? We are, we are at the head of the corrupt system. That's what it is. Because the, these companies... Just, There's corruption just, in Europe, too, though, Dr. Chu. Well, it's not that kind of corruption um, uh, that, that we're talking about. Uh, there is corruption in every country, everywhere else. We're talking of corrupting the actual system and uh, the U- Europeans went through the same thing as well and then slowly they, they got that's where they got the mad cow disease that's where they got the other things uh, our cancer rates are skyrocketing our, our healthcare cost is the most expensive in the world the country will go bankrupt uh, um, if it keeps on doing what it's doing so uh, there's a lesson and the Americans don't live any longer uh, the, uh, whatever factory you look at, the Americans are behind in every possible way. And if these companies, we talk about corruption, these companies, if, if you look at their names, they were originally from Second World War. They were all German companies that transplanted themselves into the U.S. now. That's what people say. Your show is called conspiracy, but when people begin to talk this way, they say, oh, that's conspiracy theory. So these, are the, these companies are the remnants of Merck Pharmaceuticals, of, yep, which, right. was dis, which was torn apart after the war yep. uh, into a thousand pieces, but these are it's like the, the head of a hydra. When you cut it off, you've got nine heads now. That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with, that, and they are here now. This is, we're not talking about Nazi Germany. We're not talking about Hitler time, we're not talking about that, those kinds of wartime things. These are all the DDT and, and everything else, they, they all came out, these are war weapons. And they are now being used on daily food. In the United States, there was an omnibus bill passed uh, a, a number of years ago, and uh, they snuck in a, um, a, a paragraph buried deep within this bill 
uh, that I believe would prevent people from, that would protect companies like Monsanto from lawsuits. Uh, do you recall yes, the, the bill was, that I'm um, talking about? Yes, people called it the Monsanto Protection Act. Yes. The same thing applies to the vaccines, um, against Merck and Glaxo and so on. You cannot sue companies, you cannot sue governments. Who the hell are these people passing these laws? Who, who, on whose behalf are they doing this? The country is owned by the people. And what about in the status? What's the status uh, in, in Canada? Could, Same. for example, could you could you launch a class action lawsuit against Monsanto? It is very simple. No, you don't need to launch a class action. You can if you want to, but I would suggest people. In fact, this has been tried now in the U.S. and one with some success. Um, I think people should be suing their government. It is their right to know. It is their right to um, make sure that the law is observed by the authorities. Uh, That's the simplest way to go at it, and it's not costly. You just say, this law exists. Why is the U.S. FDA not applying it, or Health Canada not applying it? Go to the Supreme Court and demand the labeling be done. Not request, but demand. I want to know what's in my food. If nothing changes in uh, in North America, uh, give me um, let's project into the future ten twenty years. Uh, what is the the food industry, the state of agriculture, going to look like in North America if Monsanto and Dow and Pfizer and these other companies are allowed to uh, pursue their their um, their aim of um, well g- genetically modified organisms? And, mm. Much of our food is being imported now from third world countries, and that's going to get worse. If we, um, in fact, clean up our act, we will create employment, we will improve our health, we will uh, have, uh, would reverse the system. What these companies are now doing, they are now descending into China and India and Brazil and Argentina. They want to uh, just repeat the same process over there. But this is not going to work. It's not working. And so extra food, (laughs) what are people going to do with it? All right. Let's uh, remind people once again. The March Against Monsanto, Queens Park, 11 a.m. That's May the 23rd. And then celebrate Farm to Fork, Christie Pitts Park, 1 to 6 p.m. Again, May the 23rd. And um, that's the second annual Toronto GMO Free Festival and Farmer's Market, the March Against Monsanto. One of the key speakers. Will, will you be speaking at Christie Pitts? Yes. That's, uh, uh, again, Dr. Shiv Chopra will be speaking, a keynote speaker at Christie Pitts, uh, 1 to 6 p.m. And uh, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you very much, Dr. Chopra. Thank you. All right. Um, Something to check out for sure. That's uh, happening next week, of course, here in Toronto. Uh, The website for this program is richardserrett.com. Let me spell the last name. (laughs) I mentioned this before, almost 20 years on the air, and uh, some people still misspell the name, and then they can't find me. But it's Richard Serrett, S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. And that's really your portal. Uh, to the uh, Conspiracy Show. All the information regarding upcoming shows is there, uh, generally uh, one week at a time in advance. And then all your past shows are there. Now, if you want to access the past show archives, 
and uh, learn about previous guests because many of you are emailing me, asking me who was the name of that guest and what was the name of this book. It's quite simple. All you need to do is go to richardserrett.com, register. There's a blue button in the upper left-hand corner. It says Members Area Login. Just click on that, and it's fast and free and easy to register. Uh, and then you can have access to the Members uh, Only Areas, which includes, again, the past show archives. You can go back now and listen to previous shows dating back all the way to the summer of 2012. And uh, you can also find out uh, about previous guests. There's a search engine there as well. So no need to, to email anymore. Everything is right there at richardserrett.com. Uh, now, uh, speaking of um, um, the website, we have uh, mentioned previously that we have an app in development, and we are so close. We're just sort of test running it tonight, but I think next week, by next week, we will, we will be uh, ready to make a formal announcement, a formal launch of the app that will be available both for iPhone and for your Android or uh if it's not an iPhone, whatever you may have. And also, I'm, I'm guessing it'll be available for uh, the various tablets if you can uh, go to the, uh, the Apple Store or the, uh, the Google Play for Android. Uh, but uh, just wait for it. Give us a week, and we'll make a formal announcement, I'm guessing, on this very program about the Conspiracy Show app. It's, uh, it's cool. That's all I can tell you. And I'm very pleased uh, with it. And thanks again. Uh, a shout-out to our app developer, Sharon Forster. Uh, for that. All right. Uh, the other way to reach me, of course, is on Twitter, and that's at Richard Serrett. Say hi, and as always, follow the truth. Thanks for inviting me into your home or your long-haul truck, your RV, maybe you're off the grid, you're listening in on your crystal radio set in your log cabin using one of Elon Musk's amazing batteries. However and wherever you're listening, climb aboard. This is a direct, non-stop flight in pursuit of the truth. So put your seat in the upright position, fasten your seatbelt, remove all sharp objects from your pockets, make sure your carry-on baggage is safely stowed, and be prepared to leave everything behind you thought you knew. This is, in fact, The Conspiracy Show. I'm your humble host, Richard Serrett. Uh, I just, I received, I wanted to just mention this very briefly uh, because I received a rather hefty information packet uh, from a woman I'll call Brenda. And uh, Brenda is reaching out to me. Uh, she's here in Toronto. She believes she is a targeted individual. We have talked about that numerous times on the program uh, with Marie Jones most recently, and Dr. John Hall, of course, uh, from San Antonio, Texas. And Dr. Hall joined us at um, my live stage event, Follow the Truth 2, back in April in Oshawa. And Brenda, I'm sorry that you couldn't be there for that uh, because that would have uh, allowed you uh, to meet directly with Dr. Hall and discuss your case. And Brenda, uh, you've included this heartfelt uh, letter, which I have read, and then all of this information up just registered mail, uh, faxes, correspondence with uh, a licensing enforcement officer, all of which I guess you believe adds up to uh, evidence that you are being targeted. And I, I have no reason to, to doubt you. Here's the thing, though, Brenda. I can't, I can't help you. Um, you you've uh, left a phone number here for me to call. 
And the best thing that I can do, uh, Brenda, is direct you to um, maybe to reach out to um, Eleanor White. A little later in the program, I'll, uh, I'll have her email uh, address for you or her website. That's the best thing. She's an expert in this field. I am not. I am a broadcaster. Uh, so if you genuinely believe you are a targeted individual, you are being harassed, uh, there is some organized uh, uh, stalking involved, and so forth. Again, I have no doubt to, uh, to doubt you, or I have no reason to doubt you. Uh, something is, is going on, perhaps. You need to, to reach out to an expert, someone who can guide you and provide you with the kind of information that can help you. Again, I'm a broadcaster. I'm not an expert in uh, electronic harassment or organized stalking. So uh, stay tuned, uh, and I will, uh, I'll get you that email address for, um, or what I may be able to do is, is have um, Albert give you a ring and provide that contact information uh, for Eleanor White. She's, uh, she's terrific in this area, a long-time targeted individual, 30-plus years, and um, an advocate working uh, for people like you. All right, Brenda, uh, sorry I can't be of further help. That's the best I can do. And I think Eleanor can help you. Um, you know, something I always find compelling is, and I always, it makes me stand up and take notice, and that's when a former skeptic or a debunker, as the case may be, has a particular experience, some might call it a come-to-Jesus moment, an experience that is so profound, they do a complete about-face and become a believer. Now, let me give you an example. Over the years, I've interviewed a number of former atheists uh, who set out to debunk the Shroud of Turin not believing it to be the authentic burial cloth of, of Jesus Christ. Only after studying it, they become believers, not only in the shroud, but believers in God and Christ. In other words, they become devout Christians. They became devout Christians as a result of studying the shroud, and they set out to debunk it. My guest in this hour was a skeptic, not of the shroud of Turin, but of remote viewing something we talk a lot about on this program. Again, the, as I describe it, the ability to transcend space and time with the mind and view objects hidden from view and even events, past, present, and future. My guest signed up for a class in extended remote viewing with David Morehouse of the CIA's psychic spy program Stargate at Fort Meade in Maryland back in the late 70s. He wanted to find out the truth for himself, and after taking this course, everything, and I mean everything, changed. John Herlosky was born in Syracuse, New York, educated at Marquette University. He earned a degree in criminal justice from El Camino College and has worked for two large metropolitan police departments. He is the co-founder of the nonprofit think tank, the Institute for Evolutionary Technologies, as well as the co-director of Project Trojan Warrior 2, a mind-body integration training program that works closely with members of SEAL Teams 1 and 3. John Herlosky, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to your show. And uh, let's uh, mention the book here as well. The brand-new book is entitled, or is titled, 
not entitled, it's titled, A Sorcerer's Apprentice, A Skeptic's Journey into the CIA's Project Stargate. All right. Now, I went up to uh, the Menlo Park and um, I met Russell Targ a few years ago. And, of course, um, we talked about his work uh, at the Stanford Research Institute with, um, with Pat Price and Ingo Swan and, and others. Uh, when, uh, I mean, you were a skeptic about remote viewing. What, when did you become familiar uh, with, with um, either the work at, at Stanford regarding remote viewing and psychic abilities and clairvoyance and so forth? Or was it when it was announced that Stargate you know, was an actual program at Fort Meade. When did you get into this area? Well, uh, this occurred back during the Pro, uh, Trojan Warrior Two project in the early 90s. We were investigating a number of different technologies uh, to use in our program, and just by happenstance, I happened to come across some uh, research that had been done in remote viewing. But at the time, being a skeptic, I kind of shined it on. I really didn't uh, give it too much credence. And it wasn't until um, late in 1997 that I had come across a book by the title Psychic Warrior by David Morehouse, right? which is, of course, his expose on Project Stargate. And I was so taken by the book that I had to investigate further. And it was, it was not so much that the government was involved in the use of um, psychic um, phenomena uh, as an intelligence-gathering asset in espionage that I found intriguing. What I found most intriguing was they took a special operations soldier, a ranger company commander, you know, about as straight as you can get, and they taught him how to become a remote viewer. And that's the part that intrigued me. And so you signed up for uh, uh, David Morehouse's uh, program, his right. class. And yeah. uh, when did you start, when were you enrolled? Well, I, um, I had heard about a class in the spring of 1999 as a continuing education class at UCLA for a beginning and intermediate course in what is called Controlled Remote Viewing, CRV, that was being taught by Dave Morehouse. So I signed up for it. And uh, it was a class, a relatively small class, about 15 people. And um, I was a skeptic, and I was the only one in there that was a skeptic, and I know that for a fact because Dave had all of us stand up and give a short background bio on each of us, you know, just listing the reason why we decided to take the course. And when it was my turn, I said flat out that, you know, I'm an, I'm an ex-police officer. Um, I have worked with the military, and my major in college was mathematics. I also have a degree in uh, criminal justice. And frankly, I am a skeptic about all of this, but I do have an open mind and I wanted to find out for myself whether or not there was any truth to any of this. So going into, the, going into Morehouse's class, you didn't believe that you, for example, had any latent psychic ability? 
No, no. You know, I've I've never had a premonition. I've never had any type of psychic experience in my life. I've never seen a ghost, never seen a UFO, and as far as I knew, um, Elvis was still dead. <laughs> uh, and this is a fairly intensive course, was it not? How how, yes. how many hours? Well, it was it was split into two weekends: Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of uh, across two weeks. And it started early, 9 o'clock in the morning, and went all the way through until approximately 8 o'clock at night. And what, what is the, the difference? I mean, we hear a lot of terms uh, thrown around. You know, there's clairvoyance. There's, there are out-of-body experiences. There's mm-hmm. extended remote viewing, coordinate remote viewing. Help us out. Sort these out now. Uh, first of all, let's start with the difference between remote viewing clairvoyance and out-of-body experiences. Are they all the same thing? Well, they're all considered what are, the, what are called uh, consciousness-related phenomena. Um, they're all part of a spectrum, let's say. Uh, you have out-of-the-body experiences perhaps on um, one part of the um, spectrum way over on the left-hand side, let's say a religious experience way over on the right side. And in the middle you have things like clairvoyance and precognition and telepathy. And each um, common denominator for all of them is the fact that it's consciousness-related. Right, right. Okay. Now, with remote viewing, it is a psychic ability, okay? But I, I'm not real crazy about using the term psychic because that engenders the idea of, you know, Miss Cleo and the psychic hotline and right, things like right. that, you know, the crystal ball and the, the swami hat and all of that sort of thing. And remote viewing is not that at all. Remote viewing was born in a bed of science. It was created by two laser physicists, one of whom you've already mentioned, uh, Targ and Hal Plutoff. And it was done at the um, uh, Stanford Research Institute under the behest of the Central Intelligence Agency. We've got uh, the music uh, percolating up here, uh, John. So we'll take a time out, we'll come back, and we'll continue to delve into remote viewing. A Sorcerer's Apprentice, a skeptic's journey into the CIA's Project Stargate. More with The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Uh, Before we get back to uh, my conversation with John Herlowski, the author of A Sorcerer's Apprentice, a skeptic's journey into the CIA's Project Stargate, uh, just a reminder, we are doing a hangout on air, on HOA, uh, if you'd like to join us then you can go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and just click on the uh, the link, which is at the top of the Twitter feed. That'll uh, take you right in, and if um, if not, you can catch it later on, uh, on uh, our YouTube channel, which is The Conspiracy Show... Is it one, Albert? The Conspiracy Show one? I... Or you just go to, go to YouTube and just... Uh, just uh, Google or go to YouTube and search uh, the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. That'll get you there. That's the YouTube channel, and you can—they're all archived. All right, and one more point: um, I mentioned off the top receiving this information packet from uh, Brenda, who's a uh, believe she's a targeted individual. And Brenda, again, if you're listening, um, Eleanor White uh, used to have a website. It's no longer up, so I'm not sure what's happening there. But um, 
you're going to need to to find someone who has access to a computer. And uh, that's where you're going to find your help, I think. And if you were to go to uh, freedom from covert uh, harassment and surveillance, and it's uh, the website is freedomfchs.com, freedomfchs.com. Um, there's a contact page there and everything you need, and uh, that's a good place to start. Just get in touch with uh, those, the, the folks at Freedom from Covert Harassment and Surveillance. Uh, once again, the website, freedomfchs.com, uh, and uh, God bless and good luck to you. Brenda. Okay. Uh, John Herlosky is uh, with us, started out as a skeptic, joined a, a class in extended remote viewing uh, taught by uh, David Morehouse, who was uh, stationed at Fort Meade, part of the CIA's, well, it started off as the Defense uh, Department's Intelligence Agency, the DIA, and then at some point, I think it got handed over to the CIA, who claimed that the project was shut down in the mid-90s because they say it wasn't working. Uh, but uh, ask anyone involved in that project, and they'll tell you an entirely different story. John uh, is telling us about his experience. So uh, this was an intensive, um, uh, uh, started out as a weekend class or two weekends. Uh, in, in total, how many hours did you spend? Well, for that, that particular weekend, it was, um, well, let's see, almost 11 hours on three days. So that's 66 hours for two weekends. Okay, and was it coordinate remote viewing or yep. extended remote viewing? Yes, Dave teaches um, coordinate remote viewing first as a beginning and intermediate course so that you get a chance to, as it were, dip your foot into the pool. Okay, and just very quickly, explain when you're doing coordinate rem- remote viewing. And I, I took a crash course and, and actually had rather startling uh, results, for me anyway, um, just explain a thumbnail sketch of how coordinate remote viewing works. Well, um, it's difficult to go into the, the, the theory of coordinate remote viewing because it is, as I'm sure you understand, uh, rather involved. But what it comes down to is, is that you have a project manager, or in this case it was Dave Morehouse teaching the course, who has the intention that you should view a particular target. And what he does is he assigns what are called encrypted coordinates, which are simply a group of numbers or letters and numbers or letters that are assigned to the concept of the target. Okay, These coordinates have no other real significance. Okay, They only provide a focus point for the remote viewers. And then the remote viewers going go into an altered state, and by using the six-stage methodology of coordinate remote viewing, they are able to access that target and describe what they see and feel and hear and taste and touch and smell. And that state that you described, is that the alpha state? Yes, yes. It, by and large, the, uh, the alpha state is the... Um, primary uh, viewing mode, if you will, uh, for coordinate remote viewers. Now, you'll find that in many cases what happens is you start to drift lower and lower into a theta state because you just get so wrapped up on this inward-turning technology. And you can really get wrapped up with the target 
and undergo what is called a bilocation, in which case you start really experiencing what a person would experience if they were actually at the target site. How soon into this um, course with David Morehouse did you begin to realize that, there, hey, there's something going on here? This is real. <laughs> you know, it's funny because out of our entire class of 15 people, on our first try, I was the only one to get absolutely nothing. Everybody else went to the target and had descriptions and sketches and everything else, and I saw absolutely nothing. And, of course, I was um, a little embarrassed, <laughs> chagrined, if you will, at that, but Dave Morehouse said that I had made a minor mistake in my in the beginning portions of the methodology. And so the following day when we did another target, I didn't make that mistake and it blew me away. I mean I I frankly it just made my draw my jaw drop. Well what were you sensing? Seeing, smelling, touching? Oh it was it was amazing because after I had taken the coordinates and I was had my eyes closed, you know, they Dave keeps the room fairly dark and fairly quiet. I mean, there's enough light so you can see to write on a piece of paper, and that's about it. And it got to the point where I was, there were shapes that would float up into my vision, and they would coalesce and they would change and morph and it was really hard to try and figure out what it was. But every once in a while, it would shift and morph into something that I could recognize, and I would write that down. And as I got more and more into the session, things started to change for me. And that was the fact that the room, which was air-conditioned and rather cool at the time when we first started, suddenly felt to me to be extremely warm and I started to sweat. And I felt really thirsty, like my mouth was, was filled with cotton. And I started hearing noises like shouts and, and yells and things like that. And I, I opened my eyes because it was so realistic that I thought I was hearing things inside the room or perhaps just outside the room. But when I opened my eyes, the room was still, you know, in a twilight-like, and it was dead silent. There was nothing going on. And I suddenly realized that the room was cool. It wasn't warm, even though I had been sweating. And I thought to myself, wow. And I think that was my eye-opening moment there when that happened. Because all these things that I had seen and experienced and everything else um, really seemed to be happening to me. So I wrote down all of this stuff. And then at the end of the session, when we wrapped it all up and we, we put our papers down and we went for a break, I started thinking about what was happening. And I thought to myself, well, there probably wasn't anything to it. I probably was just daydreaming or imagining all of these things. And I kind of shrugged it off. As a matter of fact, when, when I started talking with some of the other uh, students in the, in the uh, class, and I, I told them what I had seen and heard, and they said, yeah, I mean, we, we, I, I saw that too. And I'm thinking, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. 
Of course, I, I didn't say that out loud. I, I kept it to myself. I didn't want to embarrass them, but I was thinking, ah, uh, you know, this is this is all a farce. But to my um, great surprise, when Dave Morehouse put the uh, picture of the feedback of our target up on the overhead projector, the target was Mecca. And I was, like, totally shocked, because I had drawn the major structure in the center of the... Um, um, what do you call it? The uh, the square where everybody comes in and circles around that that building. Right, and so you you didn't know exactly what it, you didn't put a name to it. You just saw a structure, you right. drew it, and then you found out yeah what it yeah. was. I had no idea where I was. I mean, or what I was seeing. I didn't even know if what I was seeing was had anything to do with anything. So you were having a bilocation experience. Yes, that was my first bilocation. First bilocation. And is there any uh, sort of um, teamwork involved? For example, are you working as a, individuals or are you comparing notes with others in the class to try and figure out what it is, or how does that work? No, actually, each of us, we're, we're given the coordinates, and we're all at separate tables, and we do our work. And, of course, when the, the session finishes, we write up our notes and everything, and we... We, um, we just leave them on our desk, and then uh, Dave goes around and, and checks each one, of the, um, each one of the works, each one of the sessions that um, the students did while we're out on a break. And, of course, when we're out on the break and we're talking with each other, you know, we were, we were talking about what we had seen and felt and heard and things like that. So in no case did anybody really know what the target was. I mean... There was no way to tell because the only thing we had been given by Dave, and he was very careful about this, was the fact um, of those coordinates, which for us happened to be two sets of four numbers chosen at random. Now, uh, so after that moment, <laughs> uh, I mean, and at the end of that weekend, mm-hmm. did, did you you signed up for more? Oh yeah. Yeah, I had to find out more. I mean, this this was so mind bending to me that this could possibly be be real. And you know, my my belief system at the time didn't allow for something like this. What belief system in particular, if you don't mind? Well, me asking. you know, I I was brought up um, in the in the scientific method, if you will. Right. Okay. Um, all of my work in, in college had been. Um, in mathematics with a minor in engineering and philosophy. And when I became a police officer, you know, you, you, I went through two police academies and graduated in the top ten of both. I, um, I went on to get a, a degree in criminal justice. And, of course, you know, as an investigator, as a police officer, you are trained to weed through all the lies and the subterfuge and everything else to find out what the truth is. So... I was convinced, and I convinced myself after the class that, that, number one, I wanted to find out more about all of this. Number two, I was only half in belief that I had actually done the things that I had done. And in practice, between after that class and the following class that I took um, later that year, um, I would have the same doubts about the reality of, of what I was doing each time that I would do a practice target. And then, of course, 
when I was finished and I broke up the packet that I was given for that particular target and viewed what the the actual target was, I mean, it just, I couldn't believe it. Well, in keeping with the scientific so method, you had to you had to, to see if the experiment was, yes. if the result was repeatable, and exactly. it was. Exactly. I mean, you can't take one instance and say, well, it must be real. I mean, that's why when you see these TV shows and they talk about um, putting a, a remote viewer to the test and they, they want them to have, or anybody for that matter, whether it's a remote viewer or somebody who says they have had a psychic experience, and they put them up to a test and say, well, you have to do so much here, and if you don't do it, then it obviously wasn't real. Well, that's a farce. That has nothing to do with the scientific method. That, that's a particular instance. Science doesn't work that way. You have to do a series of experience, experiments, and it has to be carefully controlled. It has to be replicatable. The experiments have to be written up so they can be peer-reviewed and then replicated by someone else. That's the way the scientific method works. Well, and, uh, you know, after speaking with Russell Targ, uh, he said to me that the evidence uh, for, I know we don't like the term psychic ability when we're talking about remote viewing, but he says that the evidence for uh, psychic ability is greater than the evidence that bare aspirin can cure, can cure headaches. That's correct. You cannot deny the mathematics of the research that has been done. It is incontrovertible. Even the, one of the, the biggest debunkers out there, Dr. Ray Hyman, said that although he didn't believe that remote viewing had any real application in intelligence work. He said that you cannot deny it exists. All right. On that note, we'll uh, take a break. We'll find out then why, in 1995, the CIA pulled the plug on this program. Back with more of my conversation with John Herlosky, a sorcerer's apprentice, a skeptic's journey into the CIA's Project Stargate. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. John Herlosky stays with us, a sorcerer's apprentice, a skeptic's journey into the CIA's Project Stargate. We're talking psychic spies. Uh, if it works, why did the uh, why was the, the the plug pulled on on Stargate uh, in the mid '90s? You know, that's an excellent question. Uh, you would think that this particular technology uh, being so useful, or at least having the ability to be so useful would have been a priority in the intelligence community. But as it turns out, um, there was a lot of resistance to this particular program. Um, and it was especially within the military and the intelligence circles. The program itself actually enjoyed a lot of widespread um, enthusiasm in Congress and in the White House. That did not, however, extend back down into the military and the intelligence services. There was a lot of resistance to it. And in many cases, um, the military remote viewers, Dave Morehouse, Lynn Buchanan, Paul Smith, uh, Joe McMonigle, uh, Skip Atwater, I mean, I can name a whole slew of them, will tell you that they were, they were told that if you continue in this project, doing this type of work, you will never promote and it was this resistance 
in the higher levels of the military and the intelligence services, which, after all, are run by people who are either in the military or were in the military, that um, kept the program from really expressing its true potential, if you will. And I think that's the reason why this program um, never made it beyond 1995. I mean, the program itself um, drifted from one sponsor to another. I mean, it was started first by the CIA, but then from there it drifted over to the DIA, and from there it went to the Air Force, and then from there back to, I think, the DIA, and then from there to the CIA, and then, I mean, it was completely adrift on a number of uh, different occasions. Even though this program had produced intelligence data that you could not get by any other mode of intelligence gathering. I mean, it's it seems incomprehensible, but there was a lot of resistance to it. And I think part of the reason was the fact that many people have a religious um, uh, prejudice against psychic phenomena. I mean, admit it. If I was doing this work back in... 1600, they would have burned me at the stake. True, absolutely. Uh, the other thing is uh, Fort Meade, we're talking about 1978, I think, uh, mm-hmm. the program started, and uh, now all of a sudden, 17 years later, they say it doesn't work. 17 years it took them to figure that out? That seems odd. Very odd, especially since, once again, as I stated earlier, this program enjoyed um, um, promotion at the highest levels. And you couldn't, if you looked at the program, the, the, the successes that they did, you cannot deny the work that they did. Can you share a few, for instances, a few success sure. stories? Oh, God, there are so many. In fact, they used to call it what was known as a eight-martini session. And an eight-martini session is a remote viewing result that is so accurate and so mind-bending that you have to go out and have eight martinis to get your mind around. <laughs> How do I sign up for that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I guess, let's see, uh, one of the sessions I think is really interesting is the one that um, Major Paul H. Smith did. And he was actually on what is called an open search outward, which is simply like a shotgun blast into the matrix. And that is where the program manager at the time had targeted him on a set of coordinates but it's like a wild card there is nothing that is assigned to those particular coordinates so he enters the remote viewing uh, psychospaces and whatever happens to be interesting that he happens to come upon they write it up and if it's interesting enough then they assign other remote viewers to that set of coordinates to learn more about it well, he was doing this particular open search outward, and although the project manager at the time was looking for something UFO-related, Paul instead described a warship that was attacked by missiles and that uh, they impacted the ship and it exploded and there was death and destruction and fire and smoke. Well, they wrote it up and they sent it up the chain of command. Well, either it was never read, or if it was read, it was ignored. But 48 hours later, 
in the Gulf of Sidra, the USS Stark um, was targeted by a Iraqi warplane and fired on with two Exocet missiles. One of the first of which hit and exploded, and the second one, which went right through the ship. And that's documented. And that is documented. 48 hours later, it's all documented, including Paul's session. All right, we'll come back with John Herlowski talking about psychic spies and remote viewing right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Thanks for hanging out. John Herlowski is with us, co-founder of the nonprofit think tank, the Institute for Evolutionary Technologies, and, and he's also the co-director of Project Trojan Warrior 2 a mind-body integration training program that works closely with members of SEAL Team 1 and 3. Skeptical but curious about the CIA's Stargate Psychic Warfare Project, he attended a class taught by a former member of the Psychic Spy Unit, Dr. David Morehouse, in the spring of 1999, and he still works with Dr. Morehouse as his science advisor and assistant. Uh, Now, you uh, also, uh, I I believe, um, remote-viewed the Titanic. Yes. Now, when you're remote viewing a past event, that's difficult to corroborate, uh, isn't it? Well, in this case, it wasn't, um, thanks to Bob Ballard. Uh, we have scientific evidence of how the ship actually looks like because um, Ballard did all of that work with the remotes and actually went down and uh, did a complete survey of the wreck so that um, when we were given the target, we were able to match that with information that we had gotten from uh, that particular um, incident. So give us a glimpse into your remote viewing of the Titanic. What did you see? I mean, were you getting Uh, images? Oh, boy, I tell you. Um, That was my first successful ERV session, and it was even more mind-bending than the bilocation that occurred in CRV. Um, Where CRV is kind of like dipping your foot into the pool, um, ERV is like diving in the matrix. And your experience is much more intense in ERV. Um, When I was given the coordinates and we started the cool-down, And this is where you try and bring yourself down through the alpha state and down into the deep theta wave state. Um, Everyday ordinary brainwave states are usually in the beta to gamma range, anywhere between 13 to uh, 40 cycles per second or more. Um, Alphas are usually anywhere between, down between 13 and um, 8. Uh, cycles per second and then as you get into theta you go from eight all the way down to about four uh, cycles per second and of course below that is delta and when you use ERV you tend to drop down really deep which is basically right on the border between theta and delta uh, something just occurred to me, and, and forgive sure. the intrusion, John, but uh, we, we recently learned that a Delta team went into Syria and took out one of the uh, uh, the, uh, the ISIS leaders. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is there a connection between the brainwave, Delta, and naming these units? 
Um, no, actually, Delta uh, the uh, Delta teams were uh, created on a a separate, if you will, um, an entirely fortuitous incident. Okay, I, I it, it didn't really have anything to do with the the, um, the coincidence between the two names. All right, I apologize for the intrusion. No, Continue. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I'm sure somebody else was thinking the same thing. But um, when you get into this this deep state, um, the experience when you go to the target can become very intense. And this is what I found what happened with me. When I dropped into the target, you know, I was, when you do ARV, you usually do it as, or at least we did it, um, we would have inflatable, inflatable mattresses and we would put um, sleeping bags on them with pillows. And we would, um, we would have eye shields, which would block out the light from the room, and we would have earplugs, and Dave would play um, pink noise in the room to drown out any ambient um, distraction. So I was snug down in my, my, uh, my workplace, and I was nice and comfortable and everything. But when I dropped into the target, that changed immediately. And instead of being warm and comfortable, I became freezing cold, just freezing cold, extremely uncomfortable. And I also found that I was having a lot of difficulty breathing, breathing in. It was as if I was at the bottom of a pylon, you know, in terms of a bunch of people jumping on top of me. Right, right. Very, very difficult to breathe, and it was extremely uncomfortable. And it was very claustrophobic because I felt like I was surrounded by this thick, heavy, oppressive, dark atmosphere. And it was thick. It, was, it wasn't like, you know, walking on a, on a sidewalk, you know, with the air around you. It was thick. You had to move your arms through it like, like molasses or something. And very oppressive, very dark, very cold. And I noticed that there were these, uh, I thought it was dust or maybe snowflakes, but there was something in, in this medium that was drifting down through um, around me almost as if I, uh, there was snow drifting down around me. And I was really disoriented because, you know, I'm expecting to see a target like maybe, as, because this was a training target, I was expecting to see like maybe, you know, like the Taj Mahal or the Eiffel Tower or something like that. And here I was in this dark location that was extremely uncomfortable. And I had no clue to, to any idea of where I might have been at that time. And as I moved forward, suddenly this wall came out of the gloom in front of me. And um, I, I was really surprised because it just came right out of the gloom at me. And I stopped, and I looked up, and it way up near, I mean, it was far above me. I could see something. So I drifted up to it, and it looked like it was a barbed wire fence. Um, there were the posts, and then they had this, these horizontal lines across it, and it, it looked a little bit like, like um, barbed wire that had um, been sprayed with an um, insulation foam on it. It was very clumped, and I couldn't quite understand what was going on there. 
Just a, just a note, I've got about four and a half minutes here. Sure. I'm almost done, actually. It was right at that point when I was thinking to myself, where am I, that my next door, or the person who was lying next to me um, had fallen asleep, which is not too unusual when you do ERV. Um, you, viewers often will cycle down into sleep and then come back up again. But he had started to snore. And when he snored, it went blasting into my consciousness. And the effect was, the only way I can describe it is if um, you were on the end of a stretched out rubber band and someone let go of one end. And I got yanked back to uh, the room. And it was, I mean, I had vertigo. It was so uh, pronounced. And, of course, it turns out that the wall, of course, was the hull right near the bow. And the, those lines of what I thought were uh, posts and um, barbed wire with insulation on them turned out to be the barnacle-encrusted um, uh, lifelines. Ah, so you were, you were witnessing the, uh, the ship as she rested on the ocean floor. Yes. Yes, and, and yeah. how were you able to make? How would you? How were you able to connect those dots? That that's what you were looking at. Well, the only way that we that I, I could have understood what was going on was the fact that uh, Dave Morehouse put the uh, the feedback for the target up, and suddenly it all hit me. Of course, the cold, the oppressive pressure, you know, the difficulty breathing, um, the stuff that floats down that I that I saw. That's all the organic matter from the surface drifting down at fifteen thousand feet you know, to the, the ooze at the bottom right, of the right, uh, ocean right. floor. And, of course, you know, as it was, it was barnacle-encrusted. And um, one of the pictures that Dave put up on the screen was, of course, taken by the, the ballot organization. And it showed the bow almost exactly from the point of view that I saw it. And that was like, wow. Amazing, amazing. It was like getting hit in the face with a two-by-four. Um, we often hear about police departments as a last resort, uh, um, you know, uh, um, getting leads from uh, people who have psychic ability, clairvoyance, and so forth, in order to find missing people and so forth. It's almost as if they're trying to, you know, uh, distance themselves from it. But you're, you've worked with major police departments. To what extent are they... Uh, perhaps surreptitiously, employing remote viewers to solve cases, uh, locate missing people, and so forth? Well, I know for uh, that it has been used in the past and is probably being used, well, I know it's been used in the present because I've been involved with it. Um, but um, you have to understand that because police departments are so closely watched by the media, if it were to get out that they were utilizing remote viewers, I mean, the media frenzy over something like that would completely overshadow the case. Sure, sure. And it would make it extremely difficult to work as remote viewers under those circumstances. And it would make it very difficult, in fact, for the, uh, the law enforcement agency involved to uh, continue to use it uh, effectively. So officially, they don't, they don't, they don't believe in it, in it. But unofficially, yes, they yes, do very much. So um, there are a number of agencies that have very um, surreptitiously or uh, very confidentially have utilized remote viewing talent in the past. But you have to understand something, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand. Remote viewers don't solve crimes. Okay, we don't. 
what we do is we provide information that can provide leads to the investigators, investigators involved so that they can solve the crime. Okay, this is the way that remote viewing was designed to be used. It's not to be used as an be-all, end-all investigative right. technique. Right, in conjunction with other information and other leads. Exactly, right. other methods. And very quickly, you're, you're, you're currently using remote viewing uh, to help locate POWs, is that right? Um, I, I don't want to go too much into that because, once again, we're into a situation like we've already been discussing. Okay. But yes, we have used that um, for um, POWs. And as a matter of fact, that's how I got my first operational target. And that is something that I can talk well, uh, and we will, maybe on another occasion. I'd love to have you back on, uh, John, maybe in, in a month or two. Would you be good for that? Oh, I certainly would. All right, John Herlowski, a sorcerer's apprentice, a skeptic's journey into the CIA's Project Stargate. It's a great read, a real page-turner, and it all happened to John Herlowski. Thank you for this, John. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. And my thanks to Tim Spreen and uh, Elbert, of course, my capable intern back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be aboard for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.